welcome to Lineage. I'm your host, Shani Jamila. This show features intimate, in-depth interviews about the idea of home with some of New York's most imaginative thinkers. I talk with my neighbors and fellow artists about how the city impacts their work and how their work impacts the world. Today, my guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and musician, Tayemba Jess. Tayemba is the author of two books, Lead Belly and Olio. A Kaveh Khanum and NYU alum, he's currently a professor of English at the College of Staten Island. Our conversation was so rich and so full that I decided to just split it in two. So this is the first of a two-part series. This show was recorded in August of 2019, the day after the now iconic 1619 project launched with a large event at the offices of the New York Times. Tayemba is one of the contributors to that project, which just this month was also awarded a Pulitzer, honoring Nicole Hannah-Jones, who stewarded that really important work. We open up with a discussion about the shifting landscape of race and identity that that project probes before going in depth about Tayemba's childhood and early family life. We conclude with something really special that you've never heard before. And now, on to the show. I want to talk about uh, the fact that last night um, we celebrated the launch of a new project that you're participating in. Yeah, 1619. Yes, at the New York Times. Yes. Um, Courtesy of the great Nicole Hannah-Jones. Yeah. Yes. She was magnificent last night. Yes, she was fantastic. Yeah. Um, And so I won't summarize it because you were part of it. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the background of the project? Well, it's a collection of authors, who of black authors, who are essentially lending their commentary and analysis through... Uh, fiction, poetry, essay on the uh, presence of black folks in the United States region uh, over the last 400 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, uh, the um, transformation of the nation through the black presence in, in the United States and uh, all of the things attendant to that, you know, so you're talking slavery, you're talking about fights for freedom, you're talking about leading liberation causes, you're, you're talking about traditions and literature and music, um, you're talking about all of those things together uh, uh, being put on point in one issue of the uh, New York Times magazine in kind of a timeline. So it's, uh, it's a very um, uh, comprehensive project, and I was just really glad to be part of it. Massive undertaking, and I think the thing that came through the most to me when they were talking about on the panel last night is um, this idea of of reframing um, and having that reframing happen with the paper of note, as they called it, which I think Mm -hmm. is accurate, Mm -hmm. Um, that it matters to have institutional buy-in, I think, to a conversation that's been happening for a long time inside our community anyway. I think you know um, using the that the the New York Times uh, uh, lending itself as a platform to this kind of this conversation about reframing the country's history is critical to our our understanding of how we're going to go through the next four hundred years. So um, I would say this, like the 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 event the that happened last night, which was a reading with several uh, of the authors. I was uh, there with uh, 
two uh, other distinguished poets, Eve Ewing uh, and uh, uh, Yusef Komunyaka. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this kind of venture um, helps provide a a pinpoint in the changing dialogue or the changing understanding of what America is and who we were and where we are and the possibilities for where we can go and also the possibilities of what we need to avoid, etc. So, uh, you know, I think demographically when you look at this country, you're really looking at a, uh, at a, at a population of, uh, that's no longer going to be white majority. As a matter of fact, really, frankly, kind of isn't anymore if you if you look at if you look the look at the uh at the number of kids being born right now i would i would wager to say it probably isn't so you're talking in the next 15 25 years uh a real demographic change and i think it, what will be interesting to see is how much our understanding of the history of the country will change, you know. It's not. It's, it's not going to be like we're talking about George Washington uh, chopping down a cherry tree mm-hmm. anymore. It's not going to be, you know, about Thomas Jefferson and his unassailable uh, legacy of uh, of liberation and justice, because that's that's been blown way out of the water with Sally Hemings and the descendants of Sally Hemings. It's it's going to be uh, it's going to be about re-understanding the rise of an empire through use of slavery and genocide. And then the question mark is, well, what is happening right now when really, frankly, what we're seeing is the decline of an empire. Mm-hmm. And how will, it, how will it manage that economic decline? And how will it manage, how will it, its populace manage its... It's uh, it's it's future. I mean, honestly, I think we're. It's not just the decline of an empire. I think we're watching the implosion of of white supremacy um, as a framework for understanding. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that this whole country is predicated upon, and I think, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Unfortunately, mm. um, but uh, I wonder, like you said, for the next four hundred years, it just it feels like every single day there's another headline that's pointing towards the end of the world, <laughs> you know, right. like yeah. climate change right. and nuclear threats and impending right. rivalries and wars and right. politics. And right. yeah. uh, I was like, I hope we get another 400 years. Yeah, get, do we have another 400 days? Right. <laughs> oh God. <that's, laughs> you we're know? taking it that far, but yeah. I mean, huh? But you know, it's, it's, it's real. I mean, what, yeah. what is 400 months from now even really look like? Hmm. You know, I mean, we're talking, especially with climate change, you know, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. And what is, um, we have an election, obviously, in the uh, looming in the future. What is, mm-hmm. you know, what, what path is this country going to take, et cetera, et cetera. So it almost feels bigger than that, though. I almost feel like, you know, there's been sort of these mass extinctions that have happened over the course of history. I feel like, Earth is going to be all right, yeah, <laughs> right? right? But we might be wiping ourselves be out. Yeah, Earth will be just fine. 
Well, it's going to need to recover <laughs> from what humans have done to right. it, you know, right. which has been no small thing. Will we survive? Yeah. That's the question. Yeah. Uh, questions without answers. You know, um, yeah, you know, I, I, we could get into, you know, all the political plans being proposed right now for this upcoming election, but even with the, with the various uh, policies being proposed, question is, you know, will uh, this country be able to uh, steer itself in such a way that it brings economic and racial justice and gender justice mm -hmm. uh, to its populace and to all the people that uh, all of the countries that it's affected, you know. Uh, and that's, you know, that's an open question. So, you were born in Detroit? Yes. Born in Detroit. Detroit, Michigan. 48221. Zip code. <laughs> that's me. Yeah. How many years did you spend there? Um, I, let me see. I guess I'd say um, 19. 19 years. Because I left when I was... Uh, I was there up through my first year of college and after my first year of college I came back I spent one summer then I was gone for good so my last year was it 1985 so I guess I that'd be it was about 19 19 mm -hmm. years so solid childhood was was based very much in Michigan in the D what do you know about uh the circumstances of your of your birth huh <clears throat> let me see I'm pretty sure I was born in Henry Ford Hospital, uh, and I'm the last of three. And so, um, um, that's what I—that's what I know. Um, you know, my my folks had moved up from. My dad was from South Carolina. My mom's from uh, Oklahoma, Little Rock, around that area. And they had both come to Detroit in the mid-50s to, you know, really a black metropolis, a black, a black booming metropolis of opportunity where they could do things they would never have been able to do in, in, in the places they were born. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, started a family. And I was the, uh, I was the last one. What are your... Um happiest childhood memories or maybe what are the most, maybe not necessarily happiest what are your most prominent childhood memories <laughs> uh <laughs> riding a bike up and down my street <laughs> you know uh and uh playing uh touch football at, at and also playing actually on high school football at UD high that was great that was one of the best things I did in high school period uh why uh you know it it, it kind of introduced me to a fraternity of brothers that you know and we we played games we didn't lose we didn't win very much i didn't even play that much <laughs> but it was fun as hell and i yeah. loved it you know it was great um uh i would say you know going out to see the christmas lights <laughs> we I don't know people. I don't think people do this anymore. But mom and dad would put us in the car and like Christmas Eve, 
and it'd be nighttime, and people have these huge, you know, Christmas light displays, and it, and, you know, we would go around and see all the Christmas lights. Uh, the Thanksgiving Day parade would be. Uh, my mom had an office where we could, you know, go and see see the whole parade from her office window. All those things, yeah. She was a, a social worker, a nurse. Yeah, my right. mom was a nurse who became the dean of a nursing program. She wow. actually started. Uh, she started the nursing program, which was the very first to admit black people in the city of Detroit. Mm. So you're talking, you know, late 60s, early 70s. So, um, uh, yeah, that was my mom at Wayne County Community College. And I was interested to see as I was prepping for the show that um, one of the things that we share in common is that both of our fathers uh, are chemists. No joke. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My dad <laughs> yeah, was a chemist. Yep. Well, he is, I guess he's certified as a chemist still, you know, but yeah. Mm-hmm. His career was uh, in, uh, he got a PhD in, in chemistry. Well, first he, got a PhD, first he got a pharmacist degree, and then he got a PhD in chemistry. Mm-hmm. And uh, he became uh, director of labs in the city of Detroit. So he was, uh, yeah, deep in the, on the chemistry tip. Yeah. I wonder if our fathers know each other. That has to be a you small You know, there were a lot, because there were world. so many... Like my, you know, people who were first or there are very few in their field, I wouldn't be surprised Mm -hmm. if they heard each other's names at the very least. Chemistry was my worst subject in high school. Uh, Hey, (laughs) hallelujah. (laughs) You got that in common. I was thriving in English and language arts and, yeah. I was like, yeah, science was like not. (laughs) My sister went in that direction and she she did very well Mm -hmm. in that direction, but. That was definitely nowhere near where I was, no. When did you first recognize that writing was going to be one of your biggest gifts? Um, I guess I always liked to read a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would probably say that um, somewhere around high school, around high school, I... um, I got a vision for a poem at night, and it woke me up in the middle of the night, and I wrote it down <laughs> and uh, took it to my uh, English teacher. Uh, and uh, and he, he was like, well, okay, you know. And he made, he, he made a few suggestions and this and that. And this is my senior year of high school, so I, I submitted it to this uh, AXO competition, uh, Academic Olympics sponsored by the NAACP. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> and um, it turned out it got second prize, which was uh, amazing. Mm-hmm. But I was a little pat on the back saying, hey, oh, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe this is something you might, you know, want to try your hand at. Uh, Dudley Randall was one of the judges. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I did not know who Dudley Randall was at the time. And I did not really know until later. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Dudley Randall. Broadside Press. The Broadside Press, mm-hmm. uh, the founder of Broadside Press, actually, um, uh, was uh, 
know, the, the editor of the anthology that almost every black poet has called The Black Poets. It's right behind you. There you go. See? <laughs> See? <laughs> so uh, a book that has gone in many, 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 many places. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he was there. So I, I, I did not really know who he was at the time, but... Do you that, remember what the poem was about? Yes, it was about the streets. It was called The Streets. Mm-hmm. It was about Detroit. And I guess this this goes back to home because, uh, you know, who is going to be rough to say, but uh, my parents' experience of Detroit was much different from mine. Mm-hmm. In that um, my experience of Detroit, born in 1965, was that... Uh, I was born into a city that was talking about its renaissance or coming back from, you know, um, or combating against a kind of uh, slow, um, constant dissolution, so to speak, a kind of uh, corrosion, so to speak, because we're talking about the Rust Belt. You know, we're talking about uh, the time, the era when the major auto manufacturers were leaving, where the plants were leaving the city of Detroit. So you're talking about, you know, a population that, you know, you didn't have to have a college degree to have a house, a new car every year, support your family, you know, you didn't need, you know, you didn't need any of that to, to just to do, you know, really very well. And and that was all slowly evaporating. And on top of that, you know, there were the uh, there was the uh, uh, the liberation riots of '67, and there were uh, then in the '80s there was a the scourge of crack just kind of did what it did all across the country. So. My experience was seeing a Detroit that was slowly falling. And uh, as you were growing up, as I was growing up. Hmm. And um, so that the poem was about that. It was about the kind of uh, cracks in the pavement, so to speak. Um, and uh, consequently, you know. You know, I I never lived in Detroit after around the age of nineteen. Hmm. Yeah. Um, do poems still come to you in your dreams? Yes. Yes, they do. Yeah. You know that that twilight, that twilight time when you're just about to fall asleep, and you're semi-conscious and not totally. Your your uh, your imagination is going in places that's half hooked to your consciousness, but half going out into the sphere of nothingness. Yeah, that's that's where a lot of great ideas come from. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, I used to sleep with um, a pen and paper on the bed. Good idea. And um, I would scribble because poems would come in in my dreams, and I would scribble yeah. them um, as best I could. 
tried to make it a habit to wake up. Right. Um, Don't say, that's a good idea. I know I'll remember it. Nope. Well, and then the other thing is that the truth is your handwriting in the middle of the night is chicken scratch, or at least mine is. My (laughs) my handwriting, I think, is always chicken scratch, but yeah. You got to go back and decipher what it was that you, what was that again? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it's a beautiful thing to be able to receive. Um, how much of that is your practice? Like, what is your writing practice now? How do you go about doing that? Ah, I'm making faces right now <laughs> because uh, um, right now my writing practice is research a lot, then write, then research, then write, then research, write, research, write, back and forth between books and page, books and page. Mm-hmm. And I tend to be motivated by historical subjects, and so I spend a lot of time reading about those subjects and then trying to wait for, you know, try and get something in my imagination hooked around it. And then I go from there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, you know it, that's what's worked for me thus far, but you know, you never know. Sometimes you have to, you know, sometimes you have to really, I guess some people say all the time, you have to, you should really just push it. You know, really whatever, at the end of the day, if you just have anything written on the page, it's better than nothing. Um, I want to spend a little bit more time on your early years. Your first book was a self-published chapbook. Yeah, it was. <laughs> when niggas love revolution like they love the bulls. Hey. And the bulls were hot. It was the, uh, towards the beginning of their their NBA championship streak. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I was uh, really becoming intrigued with the a, a, a lot of other political issues such as political prisoners and prisoners of war um uh, uh, uh kinds of international uh pan-african issues and i guess um the title of the poem was in, in designed to make people think about those issues as much as they suppo- supposedly thought about the bulls, which is, you know, whatever. <laughs> it <laughs> you was don't feel it the way was, anymore. <laughs> but but it was catchy enough. It's a catchy yeah. enough title for to bring a lot of attention to it, and it became a little bit like a, a, a teensy bit viral. And because I mean, my sister received the poem, and she was in Boston over some kind of you know that's when they had email lists, you know, like, mm-hmm. or whatever. But that was before viral was a thing, wasn't it? What year would yeah. that have been? Yeah, was she talking 90... The book was published in 93, so really mm-hmm. e- it wasn't until email wasn't even around till. I mean, I guess it was around in 93, but for very few people. So you're talking about 95, 96, 97. Something yeah. Like that, 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 that it's, so it survived. It did its job, you know. It was a regular book. It was like 70 pages long, I think. That's pretty thick for a chapbook. Yeah, it was It was not. Yeah, it was. Uh, it had a lot in it, you know. Uh-huh. And I didn't know anything about publishing. Yeah. Nothing. But I knew about Kinko's. Well. So there you go. For <laughs> those who uh, those who, who don't know what Kinko's was, which... Oh God! Wait, is that a thing? I think that must be a thing. Are there? Are there do you have, when was the last time you went into a Kinko's? Ah, uh, I don't you. know. Right, exactly. So someone like seventeen years old, <laughs> they don't know what a Kinko's is. So grown, Jesus. I know. Yeah, well, Kinko's was a copy store, 
So you it was nationwide. You know, you just go, go to the Kinkos, you copy whatever it is you want. And, you know, so they copied the book. They double-sided. Well, it was like, that was a early, very early... Um, uh, not laptop, but computer publishing, because I I did all the layout myself. Oh, okay. Yeah, on a, on a little Macintosh. All right. You know, that's when they were little cubes. Uh huh. <laughs> so um, I did all the layout and everything myself, and then just you know took it to the to the printer, and they they it was they were saddle stapled. First ones were saddle stapled, then the next generation was uh, perfect bound. So if you anybody has a saddle staple one out there, they weren't more than they probably weren't more than six or seven hundred of those made. Limited edition, it might be worth yeah. some money now. <laughs> you never know. You never know, man. <laughs> I only got two or three of them left myself. So. Um, were you in Chicago at the time? Yeah, I left Detroit to go to University of Chicago, mm-hmm. and uh, I proceeded with an. Uh, with an in and out journey with University of Chicago that lasted seven years ah, until okay. I graduated. Mm-hmm. But um I uh I was I started, you know, I I to take it back a, a notch, you know, UC took me off the path of poetry. Uh and then I only re entered it at the end of my USC years when I took to take went to take a class at University of Illinois with Sterling Plump. Why did it take you off the path? Were you an English major? Yeah, I started as an English major, and I hated it. Mm. Hated it. I wrote a, I wrote this paper for a, one of my English classes, and I got a C minus. And I rewrote it. I got a C, and I rewrote it again. And I got a C plus. Wow. And I was like, okay, so maybe this is not the path huh. for your boy Jess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I became a public policy major, mm-hmm. and. Uh, that was no more suited to my desire to understand politics and and all of the machinations of uh, of policy and how they work in the world, etc. Um, but I, at the end of that experience, I took a class from Sterling Plump, who was you know a poet, and I didn't realize that I was taking a class from a poet. But it turned out that he was, and it, then it turned out that I I read his work, and I, it blew my mind, and it and it drew me back in to the world of poetry. And because uh, he read some of my work, he said, you know, maybe you got a little something, you know. you know." <laughs> and that was very encouraging. He blurbed when niggas uh, love revolution like they love the bulls. Okay, Which that's he dope. did not have to do. Yeah, you know? that's amazing. And, uh, you know, it kind of... So he was really the first poet to take me under his wing, so to speak, you know? Uh, so that was, and, and I also knew that I also had met uh, Gwendolyn Brooks around that time. I'd met Michael War, who was a guy, uh, a, a mentor through, uh, and a poet through the Guild Complex, which was a great institution to, that had a lot of, uh, scheduled a lot of events around poetry, literature, music, art, in Chicago, an indispensable organization, um, uh, and there were all there. There was like a whole community of spoken word people that were doing their thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was learning a, a lot, a lot from them. 
Yeah, but Sterling Plump, Sterling, Sterling used to have these uh, workshops that he would do. He would do little workshops and they were for free. And you could come up and, you know, and you could listen to him uh, talk about the poems and talk about them all, all together. It was, it was very, uh, very, very helpful. Yeah. What was Gwendolyn Brooks like? Gwendolyn Brooks was uh, very gracious, very generous. Um, she was uh, really the poetry saint of Chicago. <laughs> she really, in fact, she was. The, I love that characterization. She was. Yeah. She was the poet laureate of the state of Illinois for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, she was in the habit of going into uh, a venue, say a school, like elementary school, and and just having an impromptu poetry contest and giving away money. Okay. Women. Yeah. So, wow. yeah, she was very, very generous, uh, very, you know, um, uh, gracious, you know, never, I not, never saw her be impatient, you know. Um, so she was uh, very special. Went to her funeral, actually. Her funeral was held in, it was wintertime. It was a huge snowstorm in Chicago in Rockefeller Chapel, but the place was packed. I imagine everybody must have come out in force for that. Yeah. 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 And I won $100 from Gwendolyn Brooks. Because oh. I was in one of those uh, poetry slams. That's awesome. Yeah. I think, I want to say that was around 95 or so, 90, 95, 94, 96, somewhere around there. Yeah. Did you it save was, that $100? Oh, man, I was paying, trying to pay my rent. <laughs> Word. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, you know, I think that was another, when you talk about elders, you know, that was one source. Because Haki definitely was an elder, and he was, he was you know, um, he was with uh, Chicago State University. Mm-hmm. At that time, and he was he would he had these black writers conferences, which are still happening today. I think you know at that time you're talking mid nineties or early nineties, mid nineties. Um, there was a kind of uh, hmm, how how should I put it? It seemed like there was uh, a more more cohesiveness. To the uh, to that kind of uh, to that kind of conference, there weren't as many of them happening. There weren't as many gatherings happening as there are now, mm-hmm. and so these conferences, I think, took on a different kind of weight. So you know, I went go went, go to the conference. I would see Kalami Yasalam, Intazaki Shange, Terry McMillan. Uh, you know, she's. Um, um, Sonia Sanchez, uh, you know, you name it, they were, they'd all be up in the house and that would be, you know, that was really cool. You know, I saw Quincy Troop, uh, you know, um, all kinds of people would come through. So I was really, I would sneak in <laughs> cause I had no money, man. I was broke. Yeah. So yeah, I'd sneak in. So that was, um. That was Chicago in the yeah. 90s. Like, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about on this um, program is the ways that cities um, influence us as artists um, and, you know, just thinking about ways that we make home. So for those seven years, I guess, that you were in Chicago or 18. did your time there, 18. So yeah. University of Chicago was seven. Yeah. 
But your overall experience there was 18. Yeah. I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I stayed. I was in Chicago for a minute. I was never going to leave Chicago. What happened? (laughs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) what happened was, um, long story short, I worked several jobs. As I said, I was a public policy major, so I went into public policy jobs. Uh, Those jobs really weren't, you know... Either I wasn't feeling them or they weren't feeling me. So I'd either quit or I'd get fired or whatever, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And I'd move on. Uh, At a certain point, around the time, because I wrote When Niggas Love Revolution Like They Love the Bulls, I think I had a halftime job and an unemployment check. Mm -hmm. I I was on unemployment. (laughs) So I call that the St. Ides Foundation, the... Illinois Department of Employment Security. <laughs> it was my first grant <laughs> that I wrote, my unemployment check. And that's and on that unemployment check I wrote uh Niggas Love Revolution Like They Love the Bulls. And from there, um I started to get these opportunities. A friend of mine, Koresh uh Lilan Sana, you know Koresh? Yeah. He he started hipping me to these gigs mm-hmm. like like teaching in elementary schools and whatnot and I, I started to do that and uh I, I did that for almost about 10 years and while I was doing that um still reading still trying to write you know um and eventually it became apparent that in order for me to um, up my game, so to speak, I would have to go to an MFA program. Yeah. And at that point in Chicago, there were, well, there was Chicago State, but Chicago Chicago was good, but it had Sterling Plump there, and I already had a relationship with Sterling Plump. And that was the main person I wanted to study with, but I already had, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, and then there was a couple other org, uh, organizations or institutions, but they didn't give no no money to the students at all. So I started applying that. I applied to NYU, uh, got into NYU, and, and they gave me a half a ride. And that's what got me out of shot. But I, if I had, had there been the same opportunities in, in the shot, I would have stayed. Well, when you first came to New York to to enter into grad school, what was your initial impression of the city? Well, the main thing I was worried about was the, uh, as they say, cash rules everything around me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> get the money. money. Dollar, dollar bill, y'all. Yeah. That's what I was thinking about. I was thinking, mm-hmm. okay, I have to get through this. I'm going to get through this MFA. I'm not going to stay in New York. I have no plans to stay here because I see people stay here and it's not working for them. What do you mean? Ah, this is a hard one. But being, I I had, well, to, to take it, put it differently. While I was in Chicago, I worked about, you know, sometimes I was working three or four different gigs at a time. And you know, just killing myself to make, you know, I guess economics is real, so let's keep it yeah, part of the picture, right? Of so make basically 20, I, I was, when I was really balling, 
25, 26 thou, and I'd be working. I probably have about 300 students wow. at that time. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would come here. That's a and heavy load. I would see people. I mean, you know, that's what adjuncting does. You know, unfortunately, it's it's a system where you have to work two, you know, two classes here, three classes there, just to put together. I was like, I can't, I can't do that. I'm not gonna. I have no plans to to be here like that. So I'm gonna be in here, get my MFA. I see. You know, I really, I didn't really enjoy New York until my my MFA was done. Really? Yeah. I mean, what changed? I was completely and utterly focused. On my manuscript. Mm. I mean, yeah, I got around. I had, I went out to, you know, party and whatnot, blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, it was like 1,000% laser focus on, uh-huh, on producing that book. And the book was Lead Belly. Yeah. Because it, it was make or break time. I was 36 30, when I went in. Going close to 40 when I got out. So I was like, no, it's now or never, baby. So I was like 100,000 absolutely at all times under all circumstances focused on make this manuscript mm-hmm. as, as tight as I possibly can. Because, you know, I felt for a number of reasons, I just felt like, you know, if I'm going to take time out of my life and pay money to be in this program and do this thing, then I'm just going, I'm just going to put you know, like pedal to the metal. So as a result, you know, it wasn't really until the end of the program that I looked up and uh, I looked up and was like, wow, this is really nice, you know, <laughs> after all the smoke it cleared, you know. Well, it paid off. Lead Belly was named one of the best poetry books of 2005 by the Library Journal and also Black Issues Book Review. Mm-hmm. How would you summarize what you were talking about in that book? Well, Lead Belly is a uh, collection of uh, poems. That, a coll- it's like a biography in verse of mm-hmm. the life of Hoodie Ledbetter, who uh, was the king of the 12-string guitar. And it's uh, poems in his voice and the voices of people and objects around him. So it's really, it, it's also, it's about him, but it's also exploring, you know, concepts of migration uh, the uh, prison industrial complex because he went to prison twice. Um, uh, the the music, capital T, capital M, the music. <laughs> um, uh, there's a love story involved in it. There's there's issues of uh, of ownership and and the kind of objectification by uh, through. Uh, the objectification of black body and culture through the academy, as represented by John Lomax, who was an ethnomusicologist. So all kinds of internal struggles that I discovered when I was reading about his life that that were set at the at, in the bridge between the nineteenth and twentieth century, but but also were um, templates, so to speak, for much of the the kind of um, uh, uh, scenarios that we see played out up until today. How did you come to him as as the subject? 
Well, that's one thing about Chicago is it introduced me to the blues. Uh-huh. Like the real gritty gut bucket blues. You mm-hmm. know? I mean, that is, uh, you know, Chicago has a, has a bit of a blues industry. Frankly, it had more of a blues industry in the, in the 80s and the 90s than it does now. Um, but, you know, I would go to the clubs and and like see the acts. I saw a buddy guy back when he owned this little joint called the Checkerboard, you know, and he would just be playing that guitar up and down the aisles and, you know, it was little juke joints, you know. So I would go to these places and I would see the music. And I really got to see Sterling was important to me because he, he introduced to me how the music and the, and the politics flow into each other and they inform each other. Say more about that. Well, you know, I think that I think there's there was a tendency for me, or what I way I perceived the blues at that time, was to was as a kind of phenomena that was separate and from political action or not related to political action, you know, or not related to any kind of political um, uh, consciousness, uh, but. What I came to understand uh, was that blues is a manifestation of a unique political statement, and it's embodied. It's embodying the political statement of bending in order to not break. Mm-hmm. Like when you blew a note, you bend the note instead of. So you're bending instead of breaking in order to bear the load, so to speak, mm-hmm. of the song, and the song is is the is taken from is the is the same music from the continent, you know, uh, synthesized through Western instruments, right, and turned into this music that you know is inseparable from the history of the country and also uh, provides, has provided a kind of uh, a strength and a a vehicle for ingenuity and prosperity that very few other um, uh, phenomena or exercises uh, provide. Uh, that's just one way in which you know the the blues is in communication with or is a manifestation of of the political, um, and I was slowly becoming more aware of the of the way that they synthesize you know with each other, and I think you know with the literature you know <laughs> what I liked about what Sterling was doing he was he was he was grasping grasping these these. Uh, these musical characters and bringing them into into his work and making them and bringing their music onto the page in unexpected ways. And that's what I wanted to do. This is where we'll leave part one of my conversation with poet and musician Tayemba Jess. But don't worry, you'll be able to catch part two when the next episode of the Lineage podcast drops. In the meantime, I promised you something really special before ending. And I'm a woman of my word. So here it is. We're going to close with a musical composition Tayamba recorded especially for this program. 
Every sound you hear is just him in his harmonica. This song picks up on the blues aesthetic that he was just discussing. He told me he was thinking of Flint, Michigan when he wrote it, who six years after the contamination crisis was first exposed, still can't rely on clean water. This is a travesty that demands our collective sustained attention, particularly in the midst of a pandemic that's largely prevented by handwashing. As the best artists do, Tayamba tunes into the ethos of this moment in this song. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us on iTunes. It helps others discover this show. You can also follow us on the socials at Lineage Podcast and visit lineagepodcast.com for information about live events, to see portraits I've made of our guests, and to become a patron of this broadcast. For more from me, head on over to shawneejamila.com. The inaugural season of Lineage is brought to you by the generosity of our campaign supporters, with special thanks to our founder circle. Amika Carter, Ayana Dixon, Vera Grant, Lawanda Hodges, Ayana Minor, 
Wendell and Helen O'Neill, Romani Rogers, Jimmy and Lee Sutton, Chantal Vera, Stacey Burton White, and our associate producers, the BK Fam. Graphic design by Tony Moore Images. Original music composed by Cody Got Beats. Thank you.